O God, you have prepared for those who love you such good things as surpass our understanding. Pour into our hearts such love towards you that we, loving you in all things and above all things, may obtain your promises, which exceed all that we can desire. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, this is, uh, this is our prayer. Now, this is a... Uh, Collect out of the Book of Common Prayer and uh, written probably in the 1500s, probably by Thomas Cramner. And uh, it has some beautiful truths in this prayer that uh, I think needs to become our prayer because we are inundated constantly for things competing for our desires or our loves. So this part of this prayer that says, Pour into our hearts such love towards you that we, loving you in all things and above all things, may obtain your promises, which exceed all that we can desire. This whole concept of, it's, I think a lot of times what our worship really is, is a changing and helping us recalibrate our desires. Because of this competing world we live in, that there are all kinds of things competing for our desires, we come to worship, and we worship in such a way that I think the way we worship, it gets God's Word into us to help form and shape our desires, our loves. James K.A. Smith um, in his book called You Are What You Love, he contrasts how we are shaped and formed by what he calls cultural liturgies. There are, this is a strange way to look at the world, but he sees it this way. Once he describes it, it's kind of an aha moment for you. You're like, oh, okay, I get that. There are, there are expected ways of behavior that we have um, in various scenarios, which are learned by simply doing. And then we're formed and shaped in those things. He uses an example of the shopping mall and how it forms and shapes us. And in, and in, in our everyday life, there's the, there are many opportunities for like a call and response, which is sometimes we reduce liturgy to just call and response. It's far more than that, but that's a piece of it. Sometimes in... Um, just our everyday life, there is, there's a kind of a call and response, and there's that kind of liturgical aspect of that. But he uses the example of a shopping mall and how lights are conditioned, the lighting is conditioned, so it seems like daylight all the time. It, he talks about how, as he's describing it, this is before he tells you what you're going into. And as he's describing it, me being a church guy, I'm thinking we're entering a great cathedral or something. And I thought, you know, this is too obvious. He's not going to describe that. Then I'm thinking, okay, he's describing probably a Colosseum or a, or some play, a sporting arena of sort. And then as the as his writing continues, he uh, he he exposes the fact that what he's talking about is the shopping mall, and even in it, it's a cultural liturgy where one is shaped and formed by it. We are also formed and shaped by sporting events and like social clubs, and there there are expected um, ways of behavior, and then there are expected things that people would say and maybe a call and response in those areas as well. So our habits and our, uh, and our thinking are conditioned, and we are responding to what it is we experience. Well, he says, if you are what you love, and your ultimate loves are formed and aimed by your immersion in practices and cultural rituals, then such practices fundamentally shape who you are. At stake here is your very identity, your fundamental allegiances, your core convictions and passions that center both your self-understanding and your way of life. In other words, this contest of cultural practices is a competition for your heart, the center 
of the human person designed for God, as Augustine reminded us. More precisely at stake in the formation of your loves is your religious and spiritual identity, which is manifested not only in what you think or what you believe, but in what you do and what those practices do to you. Now, I think that I think this is a, a I think it's very enlightening when one of the things that I talk about with us a lot of times is what we believe and why we believe it. I think for a large portion of the church and most of my church life, the we didn't discuss those things. And so I think it's very important that we discuss what we believe and why we believe it. But what what he's talking about is, is not only what you believe, but what you do. So I think as we enter in this passage today of Mary's Magnificat, her song of praise because of what God has done in and through her. Uh, And this is her response to that. Mary was shaped by her habits, by her habits of worship and by Old Testament stories so that she had something to offer back to God. And I think because the... the, uh, the Israelites, the, the way the Jewish worship worked, it was a very liturgical kind of service. For some of you, I know this is kind of new for us, some of us. So it's very old. And I talk about how it goes back to the Reformation of the Church of England, but it goes way back. And when we, when we studied Exodus, we did recognize that our pattern of worship was the same as the very first worship service ever recorded in Scripture. For that, and that's in that very general way, but in our general headings, that's, that's what we saw. We saw that then, and it's still true today. We have general headings like gathering of God's people, entering God's presence, and then experiencing God's Word, and then responding to God's Word. And in those general headings, as we were studying Exodus, we saw that exact same kind of pattern there. Um, I find this interesting then that you're like, okay, why would Mary, when she's exposed to this angel Gabriel who scared the bejeebies out of everybody when he would show up, sometime, somehow he entered her presence in a softer tone, but then he, there was, seemed to be no doubt that he was of the Lord and that what he was telling her was from the Lord. And, and we see no resistance on her part. All we see is obedience. I think because she was already shaped and formed, then she was able to respond. And I think we're going to see how she was shaped and formed because of this prayer that she then wrote. So she's traveled for three or four days. Last week we talked about how she was in uh, uh, a three or four day journey to get to uh, Elizabeth and Zachariah's home and be in their presence. And as she greeted them from the door... The baby, John, in Elizabeth's womb, leapt because of the presence of Jesus. It was very interesting that three months prior to John appearing outside the womb, he was already doing his job as the forerunner to Jesus. And Jesus was showing up as, like, I don't know, three, four days old or something at that point. I mean, in the womb. So uh, there was a lot of, a lot of uh, forming that still needed to happen to him. But John knew who he was. And no doubt, because of this Old Testament... Um, the Old Testament scriptures, which is what Mary would have been exposed to, uh, it's it's common to believe that most young girls certainly would have known Hannah's prayer. Hannah was uh, the uh, the mother who was barren and said, you know, I I need to uh, uh, cry out to the Lord because I cannot do this on my own, and and she felt so uh, distraught. And so the Lord heard her prayer and gave her Samuel, which in turn she gave Samuel to the church, to uh, Eli. So 
her song, her prayer, is probably a... There are many resemblances between Mary's prayer and Hannah's prayer. And there's probably good reason for that because that's probably some of that forming and shaping of liturgy in uh, Mary that uh, she already had deep in her. So we're going to see here today that the Lord has come to rescue his people with a mighty arm of strength and power, and those who run to him will be blessed forever. His people will magnify the Lord in response to his great love. So first we're going to see that the Lord is magnified in the person. We're going to just divide in this between the Lord is magnified in the person and then the Lord is magnified throughout the nations. So we're going to look at the person first. So if you will, let's see uh, verse 46. It says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. How can Mary magnify the Lord? How can she make him any bigger than he is? Well, obviously she can't. But her spirit rejoiced in God our Savior. So during these few days, she's had time to process what's going on in her, through her, with her. And then she's received that confirmation we talked about last week from Elizabeth, who she recognized Mary's secret of how she was uh, impregnated with the uh, by the Holy Spirit with our Lord. Once she shows up in the presence of Elizabeth, Elizabeth recognized that and commented on it, and then uh, and then blessed her with a double blessing. So Mary's response after this double blessing is this, and she's responding with great worship. She's rejoicing in her innermost being. And Jesus had said that true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. Well, Mary was worshiping in spirit and truth. Much like Mary of Bethany later would worship at Jesus' feet because she would pour that very expensive perfume out on Jesus' feet. She would give all she had to show a response to the love that he showered upon her. King David was enthralled in worship when he really didn't consider what his wife might think or anybody else as he danced before the Lord. He was enthralled in worship. He was worshiping from his inmost being. Charles Spurgeon said, I like sometime to leave off praying and singing and to sit still and just gaze upward till my inmost soul has seen my Lord. Then I say, He is expressively lovely. Yea, He is altogether lovely. Do, do you take the time to do that? Do you take the time to dwell on God's Word, a truth, an attribute of God, and magnify the Lord from your inmost being? This is what the Lord is talking about in, in this passage. As we, as we meditate on the truth of the Lord, the Lord becomes magnified. As we uh, understand Him bigger and better, our corporate worship aids us in magnifying the Lord in a heightened way. On a negative side, to understand what happens, I think, as we come together in corporate worship, on a negative side, you know about mob mentality. There's, there's that thing where you see these riots and whatever going on sometimes as, as uh, people come together, and they're doing all kinds of horrible things that le- if they were just as their individual selves, they would never do. But that mob mentality starts spinning, and they start behaving very badly. There's something about when we come together in worship that the collective body of Christ coming together, we're able to be moved into this heightened state of worship and God's word speaks to us with unique power in those times. So I think that uh, God 
in his word is desiring for us to magnify him at every opportunity. Verse 48 says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Once again, we see that God comes to those who are in need. Mary knew that she could not save herself. Mary knew that Israel could not save herself. This Redeemer was needed and expected. He looked on her humble estate. Peter and James both quote a proverb which says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus said in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're familiar. It is those who are low in spirit that receive the grace of God. The self-sufficient and proud, those people will go away empty. Those who have no need for God because they've got it made, they will miss out on God's grace and go away empty. Mary will be called blessed from generation to generation. And this is not a statement of pride by any means. She had already just talked about how God had visited her in her humble estate. And that, by that great condescension of God reaching down to her, she's, she's recognized that, admitted that. She's responding to that. And she recognizes that from generation to generation, the uh, people will call her blessed. And so it has been, and so it will be. But like Mary, those who give birth to Christ in their lives are called to be a family of God. And they are blessed forever and ever. The Lord is magnified in each person's life. And then we'll see that the Lord is magnified in the nations. And in verse 50, you see, it says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his, with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Mary sees what's going on here as a, in herself as a microcosm for what's going on as God reaches the nations. Her initial response, in the first few verses was a personal response. And then we move into this section and it, and it changes to past tense. It's prophetic language. And like the Old Testament prophet, there's a uh, change in tense because the, the um, prophet, or in this case Mary, in her, in her prophetic prayer or song, she's got so much confidence in what God has done, is doing, is in the process of doing, that will be completed even later, the fulfillment of what has begun. It's, sp- it's spoken of as if it's already completed. And so she offers these prophetic verses, and they are a reality that the way when Jesus comes, it reverses many things. In these few verses, we see a reversal of the, uh, a moral reversal. We see social reversal. And we see a spiritual reversal. You know, the, the way uh, is upside down. The, the way of Jesus is not the way of the world. What is down is up, and what, up is, what is up is down. In verse 51, it says that he scattered the proud. He scattered the ignorant, I mean, the, sorry, the arrogant and the conceited. They were proud in their thoughts of their hearts, it says. So it's in that inmost being where their pride exists. And these kind of people, were inward, they inwardly plotted and schemed to practice their arrogance, like Nebuchadnezzar from uh, the Old Testament, the ruler who God brought low, and then he roamed the ground for seven years like an animal, and then came to his senses, and then he worshiped God. So as Mary's speaking in this prophetic voice, she looks back in history, then she looks forward to see what's, what's going to happen in the future. And so looking forward... We could think of we could think of everything every uh, 
high person that's been brought low since then, but I was thinking of King Agrippa, who the Bible says immediately the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. This is a moral reversal. 52 says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And here we have a social role reversal. In the past, Belshazzar was an arrogant king and held a party used, uh, using God's vessels for worshiping during this party the other gods. So he used these holy vessels and it was a party of debauchery. Well, the, in the midst of their partying, that's when the, the hand appeared out of nowhere that wrote on the wall... And it said that, uh, that he had been found wanting. He'd been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And that his kingdom was divided and could not stand. And so he was brought low. Then Daniel was raised up. The Daniel from that lowly estate was raised up. So we're seeing, we see that pattern in history. And then, of course, the great example would be in the New Testament, Paul writes of Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name of, that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. This is what the gospel does. The gospel lifts up the humble and seats them with Jesus in the heavenlies. First, there's humiliation, then exaltation. For the believer, it's that same pattern. It's a humble heart that receives God's grace. And then it's the exaltation as the Lord raises us up with Christ. Verse 53 says, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. So in the, in the past, in the Old Testament, the Lord would bless people who were hungry in their spirit and thirsted for Him. He would mo- oftentimes bless them materially. And we see as, the, as we come into the New Testament, that shifts into more of a spiritual blessing. But as Psalm 42 says, this is, this is what the Lord's desire is, is that spiritual hunger, that spiritual thirst. Psalm 42 says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, my soul pants for thee. Then looking forward, that we could think of, of if we see that in the Old Testament, then we look forward and we could see that the rich young ruler is one who, he was not a, uh, willing to give up his stuff. He talked Jesus asked, what must I do? Jesus gave him an answer, but then he went away empty. He went away empty. The rich, he sent away empty is what the last half of verse 53 says. And we see it fulfilled in him. We develop this spiritual hunger for God. And then God comes and fills that. And we have a renewed sense of satisfaction. And then as time goes by, we, and in that process, we've got a deeper uh, we, well, a deeper volume of God's spirit among us that can that in which we need to satisfy. But as as time goes by, we find ourselves needing to be satisfied again. So we we work on a hunger for the Lord, a thirst for the Lord, and then He comes and fills us again, even much more so. And then we're satisfied again. It's kind of this cycle that we live through, and we need to be conscientious of that, so that we are in pursuit. So we are actively pursuing a hunger for God. Verse 54 says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring. So Mary looked back as she's, this was the pattern of each one of these. And so she's looking back in the Old Testament and she's remembering the covenant that God struck with Abraham. And then she's thinking of the, of, of the present, but then she's also thinking and per, 
prophesying about what comes in the future. And that reality that we are children of Abraham. Those who are going to become believers in her son, who are going to be the children of God, we are Israel. So with that, she's seeing and recognizing how God made this covenant with Israel and how he is fulfilling it and hadn't forgotten his people and it says remembrance of his mercy. And then it said to Abraham and his offspring forever. So there's this understanding that it's not a, a temporal time. Though we live in a temporal time, the blessings of that covenant that was struck with Abraham go on forever. So all that would come to the Messiah are going to be children of Abraham. So those who abide in him who come to him, who abide in his grace, who abide in his mercy, will be blessed forever. So there's where we can take great comfort. And her beautiful prayer, um, it, it illustrates how God has worked in the past and how God is working currently in her current state and then how God's going to work in the future. So may you hear and receive and develop a hunger for the righteousness of God, a hunger for God, a hunger for God's word, and then live into this mercy that he extends to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.